This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. So, folks, welcome. Uh, today uh, at Enrollment Resources, we're going to be talking about an, uh, something called lean management, which is very popular in uh, the whole area of, of manufacturing and now other industries. Um, about 13 years ago, Shane and I landed on a weird notion that we could take the key tenets of uh, lean management and we could uh, apply them to enrollment management within education, right from generating leads to admissions to retention of students to placing them in graduate services. And so we've stayed hard on that tenet saying that you can, by making little tweaks, um, you can improve your revenues of your school while shaving costs at the same time. And our clients who've gone along this ride with us can attest to that. So uh, what we're going to do today is I, I'm going to give a little overview of lean management so there's a background. And then we're going to give some examples and tips as it relates to lean management and how it can apply in admissions. And then we're going to do the same uh, lean management and how it applies in the area of marketing. And the goal for us today is to have you look at how you operate your school in a slightly different way and um, do more with less. So without further ado, I'm going to just give a little overview about lean management. So, of course, the industrial age, there's the, the whole manufacturing process um, and uh, the steam engine came along and there were iterative, iterative improvements in terms of how things were made, how clothes were made and, and various implements were made. And then um, along came uh, Ford and uh, he started to simplify the process. You could have any color car as long as it was black. That was his famous saying. And um, so again, manufacturing improved again and again. And in amongst the time of Ford, there is this um, economist that came to bear in the U.S. Uh, called, uh, his name was Edward Deming. And he was uh, created an expertise in what was called choke point analysis. So his thinking was that if you were moving products down a manufacturing line, if you hit a choke point, entire thing would back up and you were only as efficient as the choke point in your manufacturing. So what happened is, of course, the Allies won in the Second World War and uh, post-war General MacArthur, his job was to help reconstruct Japan. Um, Edward Deming was a little bit of a pariah and uh, a little too wild in terms of the conservative manufacturing community in the U.S. And so they uh, sloughed him off to General MacArthur and said, this choke point guy, maybe he can help the manufacturers in Japan. Unlike the American manufacturers, people like Toyota and uh, the uh, Nissan Motor Company and Sony and all these little emerging trashy little manufacturers totally glommed on to Deming's theories of choke point theory and embraced them. Um, And on it went. Today, um, Toyota will have uh, 
over 50 lean management projects running simultaneously, constantly looking for ways to open up choke points from the, the manufacturing of chassis to the paperwork in the uh, financing offices. Uh, they're everywhere. And companies like Apple, uh, Microsoft, um, Nike, all these companies have adopted lean management as a core. Uh, and also all the best manufacturers in the world embrace lean management now, thanks to Dr. Edward Deming back in the late 1940s and 50s in Japan. So the question is, can we take some of what's learned inside lean management and um, apply it in higher education? Shane, what, what do you say about that? You are so knowledgeable about so many things. <laughs> So impressive. So, folks, we can do introductions. That knowledgeable person is my business partner, uh, Greg Meeklejohn. I'm Shane Sparks, and we've got Tom King on the call as well. So all the uh, smart people we could gather today. Um, yeah, no, I th- great overview. I, I'm doing a reno. I moved, and I'm renoing my house, and I'm kind of confronting this, a version of this, through the course of this reno. And I was, I've been kind of thinking about our, our school friends as I've been going through it. So I have a number of excellent trades that are doing their stuff, right? They're really good technicians, tradespeople. The guy that did the floors is great. The baseboard guy, carpenter people, great, awesome. Cabinets, the whole, you know, all that stuff has been executed really well where it's poorly run is in the project management and the orchestration, uh, which is on me and partly on the contractor I hired to do it. Not a super organized person, but does an excellent job. And that, that condition kind of exists in the schools a lot. So operationally, the, the, the school, the delivery of the, of the education is usually pretty organized, right? It's systemized. But within that, within the individual departments, right, particularly marketing and admissions departments, they tend to run more like the, the more skills-based, right? I'm good at marketing, and so I'm the wizard that's pulling the levers and making things happen, or I'm good at admissions and, you know, I, I know the, the secrets, but it's not systemized, right? And, and the deficiencies and the lack of the systems, the lack of order, create problems and, or, yeah, create problems and, and really prevent schools from taking advantage, full advantage of the opportunities. Well, here's an sense? example of a choke point, Shane, is um, admissions reps. Um, because of all the paperwork and other things they can do, they might have uh, the ability to do one or two meetings a day, two maybe. But if you go and you can take that administrative stuff off their desk or have appointments set for them, then they can double the number of meetings they have, which in theory can double the revenue of the school without having to hire more admissions reps. So, Tom, um, the the big part of, of manufacturing are standard operating procedures, um, operations manuals and the like. And, yet, and in your travels, you see some schools that have highly detailed um, SOPs, standard operating procedures for admissions, yet more often than not, you see it as like a beautiful English garden. It's kind of chaos, but it's beautiful 
and but there are opportunities lost everywhere. Do you care to expand on that? Is that something people should be worried about? Or yeah, I, I think uh, you know you, you hit the nail on the head. It's it's really having uh, having a good plan. I think the the, the basic tenets of uh, you know the Kaizen approach or the lean manufacturing approach is standardizing and improving effectiveness and removing waste. So I think one of the best ways to do that is standardize on a procedure that you know works uh, and that you've tested and will continue to test until the end of time uh, that we don't just rest on something that we used to work for us. Uh, But making sure everybody understands their role, mapping those out in an an SOP or a standard operating uh, procedure for your school, Scripting them, you know, to a large extent so that they understand what to do when this happens, then I do this. When this happens, then I do that. Again, we don't want to make people robots, but if we give them the groundwork and the process and procedures to be successful, uh, then we can grow and eliminate that waste and be much more effective. And the other thing that really does is you want to create a repeatable and scalable process, and you can't scale chaos <laughs> yeah you just you, you know that that garden as you mentioned that english garden that's going to it's going to grow but it's going to grow out of control sideways upside down and eventually uh, you know it's go, it's not going to be as effective because stuff's going to grow into each other you're going to have to call stuff out uh, and it's going to take a lot of effort to get it back um, under control but if you have a great organizational process that you document and everybody's on board with and you separate those roles, uh, a great example, too, just to be really quick here, a great example that we found is separating appointment setting from the actual rest of the admissions process so that we can, fo- so we can eliminate the, the waste of those reps that may not be great on the phone, that may be busy with paperwork and tours while the phone just sits there and rots and those leads are getting stale because nobody can get to them because we have all these other things that we have to do. So, again, organizing the organization, putting an SOP together, identifying everyone's roles, uh, I can't uh, – it's, it's the, the basis of everything I think we do with, with many of our clients to help them convert. So, Shane, um, Tom spoke this word testing, this testing word. Testing can mean many, many things. I think of pregnancy tests or what have you, right? So, um so there's standard operating procedures, but they can't be cast in in stone because there are too many moving externals, particularly in this day and age. So can you clarify for everybody what Tom meant when he spoke about testing? Sure. So in in any lean management process, there's there's different ones. Well, they're they're similar in how they're broadly the broad philosophy you've got a like in kaizen you've got a plan do act test measure improve like there's different words but basically it's once you have a system right a fixed way of doing it then then the task becomes okay is this the best way we can be doing it or is there waste that we can identify and fix and change our system to make that improvement right and so the testing mm-hmm. part of that is Okay, hey, is evaluating individual components of that system 
and trying an alternative to see if it performs better, right? And so for testing okay. to work, obviously you need a measurement of the thing being tested to have an empirical yes or no, is this improving things? Okay, so uh, that's, okay, that's good. That's clarifying for sure. Like, okay, so let's let's share a few examples. Here's one I'll share, which is is interesting because it's a, from a construct of another industry, and that being program mixture in radio. And so um, in pro, in radio, they're constantly testing and tweaking audience reviews on various programming. So so the the thing to be tested would be the phone messages that admissions reps leave. And so bear with me folks. Imagine the phone message, the phone is a radio and that instead of having a thousand people listening to the radio or in this case like a couple hundred people, there's one and that's the phone message. One person, an audience of one. So if you can make believe that the phone message, the phone you're, message you're leaving, is a, a radio station with an audience of one, then, hey, you can use the best practices used in the radio industry to, through testing. Um, go and, uh, and find the best way to get people to return your phone calls. And so what we found is that through an iteration of six or seven different um, types of messages left, when you track it, you can get, uh, I don't know, maybe 5% of the people to return your call. So now some of you may be thinking, well, 5% is nothing. Big deal, Greg. But Shane, let's, let's just, shall we run the math real quick on that? Yeah, um, Okay, so say somebody leaves 30 messages a day. That's call it 600 a month. And 5% of uh, the people uh, that would normally call back, phone back. And let's uh, conservatively say that off those phone calls, there's a 15% conversion rate. So 600 times a 5% is 30. And 30 times, that's about an extra four to five students a month that an admissions rep can pull in simply by going in and uh, split testing the phone message they leave in, until through trial and error, um, they are totally top shelf. And I guess, Tom, the key is that there's doesn't almost doesn't matter what you're testing or what messages are being left. That's the crazy thing, hey? Yeah, it's, it's the basics of just testing, uh, trying some trying something new, uh, and, and sometimes what you think will work absolutely you know goes the complete opposite. And something that was kind of off the cuff that you discovered somewhere, uh, you know, may work. So the key is just to continually test and optimize everything in your process. Okay, can I we remember jump in though? I, I yeah. want to make a point though. Yes, and you need a basic system to test against. And I think that's where, like, people bump into good ideas and fluke into innovations all the time and either don't, don't see it, right? It's, oh, hey, that worked great, and I'm going to start doing it, but forget to share it with others or, or do it and then forget, and then it, they move on. And, and the reason that that kind of innovation disappears or it ultimately doesn't make it into the system is because there isn't a system, 
right? And so this oh. testing you're talking about, unless there's a basic system that you're working against that you're trying to improve, you're going to thrash around and good ideas will come and go and they'll just drift in and out like, I don't know, daydreams on a sunny day. Right. Yeah. So what you're saying is that um, if you don't have a, a structure of testing, um, it becomes kind of like um, uh, just a big, noisy, happy, useless endeavor. Yeah, and, th- and that's the real challenge, right, is to commit to that s- system to start and then, meth- and, and then have some discipline and methodology around testing these new things. And that's where, I, I, departmentally, I think, at least in many of the schools we bump into, that's where they're, where they're challenged, right, because they, they operate them as technicians, not as kind of strategic managers. Yeah, um, lab, uh, people working in labs along yeah. the way. You know, yeah, that brings me all view ourselves as little mad scientists trying to figure out how to help more people enroll in our school, right? That's our job. Tom, go ahead. And, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I'd go as far, in, you know, and this is probably a dangerous statement, but I'd go as far as to say, you know, it's, any system is at least a good system initially. Uh, as long as you stick to something, even if it wasn't the right, necessarily the right thing, which hopefully you'll, exp- you know, you'll improve down the road, even a bad system will outperform no system the majority of the time. Yeah, you know, it, that it also applies to my golf swing because <laughs> it changes every time I go to the bloody golf course, and then, I, I, of course, I don't get better, and I wonder why, right? Ah, that's because yeah. you, you, you golf like a ballerina. I golf like uh, I, I don't follow a lean management process in my golf game. Before we move on, this brings me back to a story of about 10 years ago. Uh, Shane and I were doing split testing uh, workshop by way of a webinar with 35 admissions people. And the whole thing was on split testing different areas of how they interact, emails, phone calls, what have you. And um, we were... Um, split testing for a period um, drops people who didn't show for appointments and and there's this guy named Jim Jameson from a chain of schools called Trias College and 10, 10 campus school and and so Jim said um, he said well here's my tests and uh, he said I phone back the drops and I'd say look this is Jim you didn't show up uh, when you get serious about your life phone me back, click. And and there were these other people, and the 35 people on the call going, that is so rude, how could you be so rude? That's just so blunt and all this. And, of course, exacerbating it is he's Canadian, and so he's supposed to be polite. And um, so finally, after they kind of ripped him for a while, somebody said, well, what was your result? And he said, well, I had an 80, 87% re-up. And they all just shut up. So I guess to Tom's point is, it almost doesn't matter. But for Jim, he he could deliver that based on his personality. So you know, um, nine, uh, seventeen out of twenty people in his drops came back, and 
his closing race were, were huge. So let's go on to a, another example. So clinical psychology, um, they have a very structured process in how they ask questions and draw people out in helping them to get from unhappy to happy. And um, a number of years ago, the sales industry uh, started to, to adopt the core processes used in psychoanalysis, analysis, psychology, counseling, and they started to use this nature of this structured development of questions um, as it relates to getting people from unhealthy to healthy. They started to use it as a way to move people from um, not interested to purchasing. And, uh, and admissions sit somewhere in between, between selling something and actually counseling somebody to have them happy. And so, Tom, so the nature of how people ask questions in an admissions process, can that be tested much along the lines of how a psychologist can use a structure of testing to get someone happier quicker? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really all about, again, having a plan or a process and understanding what the outcome is that you're trying to achieve. Uh, and in the admissions process, we know that the appointment setting or really the career planning session as well when they come in, it's very much an emotional process. People buy based on emotion, not necessarily based on fact. They can justify the purchase you know, with logic, but they're going to buy based on emotion 95% of the time. So when you use kind of that clinical psychology approach to really get to their why and make an emotional connection with them first, which gets them to realize their core why and brings out the emotional aspect of, well, I've got to make this change. Then when you present the value of what your product is and everything after that becomes a whole lot easier uh, to gain, you know, the outcome that you're looking for. So having a great process uh, and understanding exactly which questions to ask and when and what the purpose of those are and being able to go a little deeper with the whole question behind the question, as, as we call it, and, and we, we train people on, really get that emotional reaction going and it will help lead them to being much more open to what it is that you're going to propose. So dreams, dreamscaping with people, helping them to envision what life might be like if they go and they move in a different direction in terms of the career actually emanated out of core work done by Carl Jung in the 1930s where he said 90% of your problems can't be solved. They can only be starved. And so by focusing on what life could be like and letting the, the, the unhappiness or the current situation of somebody, letting it starve a little bit, not feed it, that's another core tenet used in admissions, right? Yeah, um, yep, absolutely. Now, another thing is about... We can borrow from, there's a lot of things we can borrow from you know, those parts of, of psychology, and I think that stuff gets really ignored with Hey, let's just, we just want to give them, let me, we've got small class sizes with real world instructors uh, in, a, in short programs. We get so wrapped up in all of the things we do well, we, we, we forgot 
the whole psychology of sales and the we forgot the emotional process that we have to lead them through. And that all got drawn in decades ago, taking the best practice from counseling, psychoanalysis. Interesting. Another one, Shane, is around branding. So, you know, the people assume uh, that um, the reps assume that when people come in, they're all excited and nurtured and fully researched and they understand the brand of the school and that's a a wrong assumption. Um, And so if you recognize that there's the potential to be for people to have a lack of consumer insurance in their pocket about a school, you can do what Nissan did and uh, they started a whole trend and that is uh, when somebody's going to buy a a Nissan, um, the salesperson will say, here's a list of 50 people. Here's their phone numbers. They all own this particular vehicle. Let's, uh, why don't you have to sit down and, and phone them? And they'll phone three or four people, and the, they'll say, oh, it's a great car. And it just it's a, a peer uh, reinforcement. Um, we've seen some schools, what they'll do is um, they'll have a list of all of the places that uh, uh, graduates are working at. Now, they can't guarantee a job, of course, but they, they can accurately say, here's where people are, are working. And that's called brand writing. And that's a, a test that, uh, that that emanated out of the auto, automobile industry. Um, you want to build on that one? Well, yeah, Saturn uh, had a similar thing that schools some schools use, so sort of the photo of the new car owner gets tacked on the wall, right? And so some admissions teams, and it's a great strategy, it's a great tactic, is, you know, as they're walking through, get a little photo and it gets, you know, a Polaroid, it gets pinned up on the, you know, future students board as a, a way to um, connect somebody to the school. Tom had a great idea that he used with his former school, they had, Tom, what was it? He had those footprints on the floor and they were like selfie stations, right? To yeah, go, we had to go, in yeah, it's an awesome idea. And, and that's used in other sectors. Like certainly in the automotive industry has used it very successfully in their sales process, which, you know, part of this sort of speaks to the nature of innovation, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, where do you find ideas for things to test? And, you know, we're all pretty similar in how we buy things, right? Whether it's education or a sofa or a car or a relationship, right? Psychologically, we're operating in a similar way. So when you, when you have a positive experience elsewhere in something unrelated to school, like, hey, I had a great experience buying this car, I, I had a great experience... Uh, I had a great experience buying a countertop for my house, right? And it was because the gal who answered the phone was really friendly and made me feel at ease about something I was feeling anxious about, which just happened the other day, right? And it made me think, okay, that, that it's so important, that first point of contact, that first person you talk to when you're kind of not sure about something, you've never done it before, makes a huge impact on the experience and the, and the tone and the relationship you have to the brand right, or that business. Same with the school business. You know, we've, we've talked about a director of first impressions or having someone who's really friendly and outgoing and warm on the phone and what a difference that makes to a school, 
right? Yeah. That that comes from that applies to every industry in the world. And so I guess my point is when when you're out in the world and something makes you feel good, right? Some experience with a business, any business makes you feel good. The rhetorical question to ask is, wow, that's great. How can I apply that to my school or my department or my role? That's, yeah. Um, that's just unlimited innovation if you, if you view your life like that. Well, there is. They're everywhere. Here's, here's an example. Folks on the call, um, Shane, is a, in a past life many years ago, used to create magazines, and he's an award-winning guy for creative guy for making these magazines and it's all about font and kern and how you lay things out so that it reads well on the page in the white space and there are very very few people with Shane's skill set so then that goes for schools so when it comes to doing a brochure or a website here's a test you go to the magazine rack at your supermarket and you say your market is um, 25 to 50 year old females um, that are smart and uh, and that's and that's what you want to attract on a website or a brochure so rather than just guessing go and buy um, Oprah magazine and bring Oprah magazine back um, and uh, instruct whoever is building the website to copy how they've laid out that magazine and they spend chain hundreds of thousands of dollars just getting the layout right through 50 iterative tests would you not agree oh yeah yeah no those magazines spend a fortune testing uh, layout and design uh, and using you know how it differentiates how it connects to their market yeah there's there's tons of lessons to be learned from them I, I have an example yeah, of the, one of those principles we just f- recently found in a couple of tests. So, <clears throat> like any magazine that's gender-specific, you know, women's magazines or men's magazines, there's always the same kind of gender on the cover as the people they're selling to, right? So men's magazine, like men's fitness, it's not a hot babe on the cover. It's a, you know, it's a fit guy. Um, right. and, the, and the reason for that is they found, of course, that we're kind of looking for a version of ourselves or in those cases an aspirational vision of ourselves, right? That's what, what attracts us. And so using that principle, we, we, we modified our software. The, so our virtual advisor software, what happens when he clicks on a link off, off the client website or the school website, it comes to basically a sign-up page. This, we tested having the background image of the sign-up page change based on the program page that they had clicked off. So if it was a healthcare-related program page, the background image would be a healthcare-related kind of background image. If it was IT, it's a more IT-related business-business kind of thing. Um, every, everything else about that sign-up page is the same, and the background image loads, a different one loads based on the, the, where they clicked from. And what we found is that dramatically increased the amount of people signing up to take the, the career training readiness quiz, thus dramatically increasing the amount of leads for the schools. Right? That's really a magazine innovation, really, if you, if you distill it back to its source. So, well, that's exactly right. I mean, 
the other, and then of course you can go a step further, and we found through our testing that um, relate, we'll call it relatable people um, outperform in terms of lead generation, beautiful, photostock, lovely people. I'll use a guy, an ugly guy will outperform a beautiful guy um, when it comes to creating leads off a website. So, Tom, what, what's that all about, man? <laughs> uh, it, it's good for people like me, I think. So, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's really creating something, again, that's emotionally relatable. I was, what I was saying before, too, and Shane pretty much hit on it, was we do the exact same thing with, our, with website design and layout. I mean, we've got a systemized process. We've hopefully eliminated a lot of the waste and come up with a, a good process, but it's really looking at the layout and testing those different elements that helps you improve upon that base that you've created. And to your to your point about you know the pictures, we we want to see we we know that people relate to people that are a little more ordinary looking and that they can relate to uh, and feel okay, and they want to envision themselves in that role. And when you're looking at something that may be a model or some type of perfect picture, maybe it's just not relatable, and it it does it impacts and impairs uh, the number of leads that may come off of uh, of a page. We want to have great photography that people can relate to. The rule of so, thumb, Greg. The the rule of thumb is for testimonials is we're looking for a version of ourselves. That's what really yeah. we're looking for. So if I'm uh, if I'm on a school website and I'm, you know, a 47-year-old uh, dad, Caucasian dad, I'm kind of looking for a guy who's in and around who I am. And, and, when and not, not, too, not too attractive. Well, in my case, really good looking. But Oh, Lord. No, no, I'm teasing. Um, yeah, exactly, a normal person. I, you know, how oh, hold on, let me Shane. You're not only teasing, Shane. You're not only teasing. You're not accurate. So <laughs> let's Love move on. Go for I'm, it, Shane. I'm going to ask you to give some. We're on a roll here, but in terms of testing, in terms of elements within marketing and lead gen, but really, we spoke about it earlier about how marketing people, admissions people, should really throw on a white lab coat and kind of, uh, while they're doing their good work, adopt kind of a mad scientist role. We, we pull in split testing from pharmace- pharmaceutical lab testing, the iterations to land on a vaccine or on a, a, a viable piece of medicine. There's thousands and thousands of tests. You know, Einstein's favorite, famous quote about every failed test is one step closer to success. Um, and so if people can, again, using another analogy, bring in the, the testing protocol and be patient enough to do it, they can come up with some amazing little marketing wins. Why don't you give the folks some tips that we've learned through our testing as a little gift for them when uh, they go and tweak their websites? You want to do that? Uh, sure. So, okay, so here's a good one, and this came from 
Uh, basically, this came from the direct mail, the publisher sweepstakes direct mail packages that they have probably haven't been mailed in 15 years. And so, with publisher sweepstakes, if you're old enough to remember Ed McMahon, and you know the, the you get all this junk mail that came, what they they and they were prodigious testers. So one of the things they found in these direct mail pieces is that if you if you got somebody to do something, they were more likely to return the envelope, right? So a little sticker, take the sticker and paste it there to get, you know, your four free magazines and or whatever it was. Like it, it was an involvement device. So how do do get them to do something? Then they're more likely to put their name and return the envelope and make the sale. So we tried a few years ago. We tried that out on our forms, right, on the website forms, and said, okay. Let's get them to click some boxes before they, we ask for their name, phone number, and email address to see if that creates more um, engagement and more likelihood somebody will do that. And it, and it worked perfectly. So now on our forums, on our client sites, it's the I Want Answers form, and we ask, hey, do you want to know about financial aid? Do you want to know about start dates? Do you want to know funding options? Click, click what's appropriate. And so when people click the little boxes, we found they're more likely to make an inquiry, and thus lead flow go increases. That's an That's example. Yeah. Here's another one. The, the best performing direct response ad of all times sat in the National Enquirer for 65 years, and it's, Corn's gone in eight days, guaranteed phone here. That was it. And um, so Shane took that best practice all-time ad for Corn's, and he created an ad saying, uh, become a nurse, uh, get your free starter kit here, phone number. And I think the best one we did, we had 154 phone calls. And to me, that that was just basically drawing in successes from other industries, Shane. I mean, we've put captions under photos, right? You want to just oh, sure. draw on that? Oh, sure, yeah. No, one of the, the, the current best practices is to add a little caption under every photo on, on the website. So if you look at any newspaper, right, uh, there's there's always captions. The captions is just a little bit of writing underneath the photo that tells you what's happening in the photo. Hey, Sally Jones is standing beside Mark Smith at the you know local baseball game, whatever it is. People read that stuff because they're naturally curious. You see a photo and you're like, oh, what's that mean? So the caption represents a sales opportunity or a marketing opportunity. So hey, when we've tested trying captions on images, works great, increases conversion rates. So that, you know, that's the newspaper best practice. And the newspapers spent, I don't know, what, 100 years perfecting their craft, right? Well, exactly. And well, through even, trial and... Yeah, even the, the, the layout structure of a newspaper is typically sort of photo headline body copy, right, with the caption under mm. the photo and then headline, you know, what what's happening, what's the story, and then some body copy that's, you know, journalistic writing is simple, and the sentences are pretty short, and the paragraphs are short, and it's 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 telling the factual sequence of events, or at least it's supposed to. That 
basically that style is the, the, the basis of all direct response or effective advertising copywriting. Yeah, and that was all developed through just the iterative psychological testing on the flow of logic. I remember I read a book, uh, Ogilvy on Advertising, and they talked about how they uh, made an error shipping out a a print ad in a big magazine where they – the period fell off the headline. They did. They went and sent it out without a, a period, and the people went crazy, all grammatically incorrect. But what happened inadvertently was that the the results from the ad increased 11%. And what they determined was that because the period disappeared, the mind's eye didn't have instructions to stop and bounce off the ad. It kept going into the subhead. It created more readership. And... Um, and then the the subhead was more compelling, and it drew people in, and so that was a fluky test. So yeah, well, yeah. there's another uh, famous test. I don't know if it's famous. Another test on uh, swatch watches, selling swatch watches in the Wall Street Journal, right? And this is you know, this goes back to the sort of old olden days of advertising, right? But in a way, it was very instructive because the cost of running these tests was so high. And so the, the A-B test, or the split test, as it's called, where that word term came from is when, when, some, when they're producing a newspaper, they're basically producing two versions of it, or, or two copies of it you know, on the printing press. And so what advertisers could do is they could run one version of, on one of those two and the other on the other. And so every other copy would have a different, the different iteration of the ad. So in this swatch watch test, the swatch people said, oh, no, we've got all these beautiful watches. We want to showcase all of them. And the advertising guy said, well, you know, it's probably better just to focus on one. They said, no, 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 we've got all these beautiful watches. So they did a split test, and they had the beautiful line of, you know, all the different colors of the swatch watches, and the other one was just selling one, right, a black swatch watch. And, of course, the single one outpulled the many options. And so the learning from that is that too many options confuse people and hurt you in, in making sales, right, which could apply so both to marketing and admissions for school. Because on the admissions end, when you're starting laying out too many program options, it just confuses people, and they're like, oh, I don't know, I've got to think about it. So isolating yeah, so that, that course of action is better. That's right. become the uh, law of singularity, What's, what's, you know, uh, just topic shift for half a sec. The, the beautiful thing about importing test oper- ideas and split testing um, completely innocuous ideas is that through trial and error, you, in all the aspects of your school, you can get to best practice. It's, it's the easiest way to get, get to best practice. The, the, um, the analogy that jumps out for me is um, every time there's a plane crash back into the 1960s, the FAA would go and they would deconstruct how the plane crashed, why it crashed, and all that kind of thing. And through small iterations, there were improvements to design and fail-safes and what have you on airplanes. Now, there are hardly any planes crashing. And that's all because of this iterative, iterative testing that slowly but surely 
took the aviation operations industry to best practice. And that can also be done with a school, hey, Tom? Because the, the tests, they stick, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's having a culture of innovation or a culture of testing that you create. And as we talked about at the very beginning, you've got to have, I think the, the core foundation here is you've got to have a, a great process that you created and a system first, uh, and then you've got to create that culture of innovation or that culture of testing around that uh, to to bring in these these different ideas and and make you know improvements and and lean out your your process so that you can eliminate the the defects and, and focus on you know improving. Uh, each area until you you, you achieve the, the 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 desired results and the rates that you're looking for. And you can test in all areas of your school, and that's how you can create performance improvement without spending a ton of money or, or time just through these iterative little tests, and um, and you land on a winner, and that becomes the new what we call a control, and the game is always to beat the control. And if everybody plays the game throughout the school, you can create tremendous improvements. And so I think the assignment for the people on the call, you guys, is to um, go out and look at other industries' best practices and see if you can import them as a, as a testing opportunity and, um, and then get at it and just start testing. Um, I think... Uh, I want to make sure that we are respectful of time. Does anybody ha have a question for Tom or Shane and I? We're, yeah. we're happy to give you full answers. All you have to do is press star six to jump on the call. Hello? Yes, hello. Hi, who's this? Yeah. Yeah, this is Larry Bouchard. Um, yeah, hi. I just uh, I, you, you commented earlier about the, the possibility of um, you know, doing lean management via um, freeing up the time of uh, some of the some of the recruiters in, and allowing them to set you know to to have more meetings by having somebody set appointments kind of for them, and this this might just be a market. This might just and I'm I'm new to the whole recruit recruitment thing. This might be a 101 kind of question, but um, it it. Uh, it seemed so. So my question was: Does that work, or are you? Is there a certain loss in the person that's on the phone connecting with the with the prospective student um, and creating a, a certain um, a certain chemistry or a certain connection with them? Um, is there is and then they come in and then somebody else is maybe doing the tour or doing a meeting? Is you know it? What what is the would the gain be better there in the efficiency of having somebody separately? at the appointment or is there too much lost in the transference when they come in for you know to actually meet that's a great question uh, Tom you've done a ton of work in this yeah. area why don't you uh, speak to this that's a great that's a great question and it's the one that's most often brought up by uh, by people I work with is aren't we going to lose that one-on-one -on -one and carry it through and really the answer their answer is no if you can and, and there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, admissions reps are super, you know, in person. They love that one-on-one -on -one in-person interaction, giving the tour, very personable. When people get on the phone, 
they're very, very, very different. And people that are great in person are not necessarily great on the phone. Uh, so I would, huh. the first thing would be I would challenge the point that many of the reps are just not very good at the phone. And when you're making dial after dial after dial, your energy sags, and you're just not uh, as enthusiastic as you would be. But also, when you have a great appointment setter who builds a really good connection uh, with some and, rep- and has a great rapport with somebody on the phone, our number one goal was to get that person into the school so we can get somebody in. But then when they come into the school and they meet with yet another person at your facility that has a has the same level of enthusiasm for what they do, uh, you're creating uh-huh. a very contagious atmosphere uh, by having more than one person. When you tour somebody through your school, you know, the more people that that prospect can potentially interact with, if there's a student or a teacher or the director or owner or president that you can introduce them to who's really uh-huh. personable, that's giving them more people that reinforces the whole, wow, you know, everybody here is so friendly and outgoing. You know, I love the environment. And it's, that's really where it's huh. contagious. Uh, so that, that's really right. how it works. You're not building over the phone. You can build a great relationship with people, but once they come in, it's, a, it's, a complete, it's rebuilding the relationship because that's already been a day or so or 24 hours, uh-huh. and life has happened, and that person's already slipped back into the daily routine. So, no, it, it's a contagious atmosphere, and having people that are really great at what it is that they do um, that really that really makes the whole process work great. Oh, that's that's interesting because I'm I'm just uh, um, you know I'm just kind of doing some of the training now and and I just have found um, you know anecdotally just the little bit that I've been doing this is that in the past I've always kind of made calls sent them to the and and when they come in I send them to the director for the uh, uh, um, you know to do the uh, to do the tour and uh, and recently I'll I'll notice that when I make a connection with somebody when somebody's excited over the phone they actually come in and ask for me even though I told them that they'd be meeting with the director, and when they do ask for me, I close them, or not close them, but they enroll 100% of the time, which has really blew my mind. Um, and so I, I, I'm, just, I'm just really, uh, and so now, you know, as a result, I'm doing all my own tours now, and, uh, you know, and we're having some good results. So, but, but I suppose if, if, I, if somebody else set the appointments and I conducted the tour with the same amount of connection and energy, there wouldn't be anything lost. No, and how many more tours right. could Most you do? Is that fact that your tours probably, uh, you know, if you looked at it side by side and split tested the tours, let's say you set all the appointments and here would be your test and have the director do half and you do half. Uh, what's the difference in the tours and, and why they're coming in uh, and, and why yours are closing at a better rate? And it potentially could be in the way you're handling them or your enthusiasm level. Uh-huh, right, right. Okay, but in your guys' experience, uh, in your collective experience, uh, there, there, it, it's, it, there really isn't much lost in having a separate appointment setter to, to, uh, to, to the in-person meeting person. No, and the 10% to 20% bump in appointments would more than outweigh that. Right, right. That's true. Okay, I- great. Thanks very much. Very helpful. Okay, so this, Greg, can I have a minute to share a thought? Mm. Okay, so this reminds me of a, a book called The E-Myth, The Entrepreneur Myth. It was written in the 80s, a uh, great book. 
and it, it and the, the, I think the subtitle of the book is the, the the problem with small business, all small business, and what to do with it, what about it, do do about it. And so in the book, he, Michael Gerber he basically describes the quandary most small businesses have in that you've got a technician, somebody who's really good at whatever they do. I'm a good plumber. I'm a good admissions person. I'm a good salesman, whatever it is. And the business goes, I'm going to start a business. And then that technician is really good at it, except the the technical part is only a, a, a piece of it. And it's great in a specific role, but without the manager and the entrepreneur, the manager being basically the the person that can organize the systems and the entrepreneur, meaning the person that can have a vision and you know identify opportunities and innovations, they they cap out. They always cap out, and so that's why most plumbing companies are little, and most electrical contractors are little, and most massage therapists are little, and you know because they're good technicians, but they can't ever grow their business because they they never figure out the manager or the entrepreneur part. And so the de- a department in a school is similar, right? It it caps out. So we got the 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 caller the the fellow just now. Hey, he's he's killer, right? He's awesome at the admission stuff, but the the growth of the business will ultimately be limited by that, right? Unless management structure or structures built around it, and and some continuous innovation system is built into that. Does that make sense? It does. So what you're really saying is you can have an exceptional person who's slaying it, but you can't scale that person uh, right. by having yeah. So you need to create some actuators around that person, just get them doing fewer things and focusing what their superpower is. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Well, yes, and having the structure that enables growth. Like, if you don't want to grow, that's fine. But if growth is part of the plan, then that, that structure is key to it. Otherwise, it, it, there's always a ceiling, and it comes pretty quick. Mm. Does, that help you on the, does that help your question? Yeah, it does. It, it, yeah, it really does. Um, I think I have a pretty clear idea now um, because I was really I was I really thought I was on to something with the doing your own tour thing, and uh, but now um, I'm having the same problem. I'm not uh, there. There's a lot of leads that I just can't nurture the way I should because I'm doing more tours and everything too. So um, I, I was just afraid of hiring somebody that might uh, you know that that uh, might not be as good at the or or just a disappointment of somebody coming in or feeling slighted because the person they had this great relationship on the phone isn't there you know for them during the tour or something. So. Um, but you can uh, position you can position them as your assistant and uh-huh. get your name mentioned early and often in, right, in that right, right, right. your colleague's process and like, yeah, position like you as a position you as a guru and a counselor. I wouldn't go and, that far. Right. Well, all right. <laughs> Good. Excellent. So, any other questions before we say farewell? I have a question. Can you guys hear me? Sure. Uh, so this question is from Sage. Um, they were wondering, what does split testing look like, and how do you get reliable data when you have a very small sample size? So their example was a college that admits classes of 15 to 25 people per year, and that receives around 100 
And they literally said calls, email, walk-ins per year. So I'm thinking they're not getting um, more than 100 sort of people coming to them. Sample, sample size is, is tough, eh, Shane, when a school is that small. But A, testing is better than nothing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. So it means you have to make um, anecdotal determinations more than you want. But it, honestly, most of us have some version of that problem. It's not like there's millions of visitors coming to websites for schools, right? Most schools have about, I don't know, 2,000, 1,500 to 2,500 visitors a month. So, in, so it takes a little longer for the tests to get to um, sort of a degree of certainty. And when the, when the sample's that small, the degree of certainty has to come down. So we, we generally go for around 97% certainty in a test. So if, if it's 97% likely to be true, then we're okay with that, and then we will test it with multiple clients. But you, you might be more like 80%. Yeah, so or... A, a lower 60. degree of certainty and more patients? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah let the test run longer, hey? Yeah, t let yeah. the test run longer. But also, there's, gosh, so much upside. Like, look at because even two extra students, it's like a 10% increase in the business, right? Yeah, so for these guys. Ten, 10 extra students, that would, you know, add 25% to the revenue in the school. Yeah. That'd be nice. Very nice. Hey, any other questions out there, you guys? Okay, I think we're done today. So on behalf of Tom King and Shane Sparks and myself, Greg Meeklejohn, and Christy Burns at the controls, thank you everybody for coming out. Uh, if you want to have a um, specific conversation on the phone about your school as it relates to testing, we'll, we have our people that we can tee you up with and kind of make uh, this conversation specific to your school. And you can just text uh, 250-391-9494, and that's 250-391-9494, and we can give you a half an hour of time just to give you some specific ideas around testing for your schools. So enjoy the day, everybody, and uh, go good testing. <laughs> Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com.